William can relate to this, but have you ever had your head stopped up and it feels like you're standing in an empty closet talking to yourself? <laughs> well, that's the way I feel this morning. And so when I say, as many preachers and teachers do, I'm preaching to myself, it absolutely feels that way this morning. So as I go through this, if I don't speak loudly, you can't hear me, it's because I think I'm talking louder than I am. But this morning I want to speak about the glory of the Lord in the book of Psalms. And the Psalms tell of his glory. Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the life and the truth, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This morning I want to look at ways to talk to, to call upon, to pray and to praise the Lord God in a way that is worthy of Him. The glory of God calls us to give thanks to Him and to tell of Him. Colossians 6 tells us through the Word to teach and to admonish with the spiritual songs and hymns and psalms. Yahweh's glory is reflected, it resides, and it is recognized. That is, it can be seen, it dwells with us, and it will be acknowledged. Now, I'm neither a journalism major nor an English major, but I do know how a dictionary works. And I'm neither a Hebrew scholar nor a Greek scholar, but I do know how a concordance works. I might not be able to say it, but I know how it works. I'm very careful, more careful with the concordance than I am with the dictionary, because if you start searching on word roots, you can go off on a tangent. So I'm careful with it, but the first thing I did was look up the word glory in Strong's concordance. And in the Hebrew, or actually in the Greek, it's majesty and excellence and splendor, which is very similar to the, the Greek, but the Greek also has the view and the appearance of something as its glory. The Hebrew has the word heaviness. And I had to research that a little bit. And if you think about heavy thoughts or heavy situations that like sand is hard to walk through or if you get covered in sand, how difficult it is to get out of this. Think of it in, in a mental sense of that, that we have this, this overbearing sense of something and that is the idea of God's glory that, that I am trying to reach for and understand as a human. Obviously, we never will understand his glory as such. But the idea that we can go to the Psalms and learn these things through his Psalms and the way that, that David talks to him and the other psalmists talk to him. I appreciate last week that as Blake was delivering his lesson on the hand of God that he stopped and made the point that if we are on the wrong side of the hand of God, it's a frightening thing. It's a terrible thing <clears throat> to fall into the hand of God. And with that in mind, I want to, to present the idea from Romans chapter 1 that it is possible to steal the glory of God. And God hates lying and stealing, but he also hates those who would usurp his authority. And that's what really is going on in Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to read all of it, but picking up in verse 21 and going through 32, we can look and it says that they knew God, 
but they didn't honor him. And in verse 23, they exchanged his glory, his incorruptible glory, for their own glory. That is, they traded in his glory and took their own. They had stolen his glory. And then he goes on to say that homosexuality is pretty much the anti-glory of God. It is what these people were doing when they stole his glory. I don't want to get too wound up in that particular sin because if you look at verse 28, after he gives them over to a depraved mind, everything that is considered sin down to verse 32 is something perhaps outside of murder that would be easy for any one of us or all of us to fall into, particularly malice. If we talk as a group about homosexualities and are malicious towards them, we speak of them with malice, then we're talking about people with malice, and if we're malicious towards people, we have no hope of convincing them of Christ, even if they are questioning their own depravity, their own depraved mind. So to speak with them as malice, with malice is certainly wrong, as wrong as homosexuality is in the sight of God. But also with that, we have gossips and deceits and slanderers. And these are all things that come from our mouth, that we can speak these things. And that's the idea that we can learn to speak God's language from the book of Psalms. We can also see how we can be sinful from other texts. So if we learn to speak God's language from the Psalms, then we don't have to worry so much about the other things that we might say in everyday conversation. Behind the wheel of the car, when we talk about other drivers, how we can be a very abusive to those people because they're, they're in a closed, in an inanimate object, and we don't think of them as real human beings. Where people are enclosed in sin, we don't think of them as real human beings, and especially in the situation of very common sins. But we are all subject to that. Worshiping something other than God makes us greater than or equal to Him. That's what happens in First of Romans, that they... They took his glory, made themselves equal to or greater to. To worship something, it has to be greater than us. It has to be more mighty than us. It has to be more powerful than us. It has to be more beautiful, more holy, more pure than anything that we have, that we are. The mouth speaks that which comes from the heart. So as we look through the Psalms, we want to look at learning to speak Yahweh's language. David spoke his language. He's, he was a man after God's own heart. So as we think about the Psalms being the Psalms of David or for David or about David, that everything comes from our heart as Jesus tells us in, in Matthew 12, 34 as he's talking to the, the Pharisees. That every, every single thing that we say comes from our heart. So we want to be sure that we are thinking clearly when we speak. But in Romans, before he goes on to tell about his glory being stolen, he says in verse 19, that which is known about God is evident. For God made it evident. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature has been clearly seen and understood through what has been made so that there is no excuse. God's glory is clearly revealed. 
and he has sent the Christ to reveal his glory to us and those who are upright. Christ came and he served. He was made lowly, but then he was exalted on high. And now, having been here and served and then exalted, he dwells with us. He is at home with us. He resides with us. We are a people. We are built up people. We are, we are God's temple. We're set apart. We're his sanctuary. Our theme from this year, from 1 Corinthians, tells us that we are the building of God. And Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 presents the same idea that we are built on a foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord in whom we are also being built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Make no mistake, he dwells with us, he gives us his glory, but he is far far and above the creator of the universe and the creator of all. Glory and honor and dominion, the rule over everything, truly and indeed, belongs to him. I want to look at Psalms 24. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Psalms 24, and then we'll finish up back towards Thessalonians with a little bit from Ephesians and some other epistles. But Psalms 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of whom seek him, who seek your face, yes, even Jacob. Lift up your head, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the mighty in battle? Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. What beautiful language. You think, think about these gates. On either side, there's these huge towers, towers that look far out into the distance to, to see if the enemy is coming. Strong towers made of rock and brick, mortar, to be a defense against these things of the earth. And then you have the gates gates that lift their head up to bring the glory of the Lord in. Perhaps the Ark of the Covenant may have been brought to mind to the ancients, but to us, think, our hearts open to the Lord. Yes, we lift up our heads and open our hearts to the Lord. These are the ideas from the Psalms that help us to see great magnificent things. And this was everyday language of the ancients, but in everyday language of, of our time, 
to see the glory of the Lord in that. Not 21st century ideas. Not gates, not walls, not towers, not even lords. We have no idea what a lord would be. Someone who owns all the land around us. And we farm at his bidding. If he doesn't want us farming his land, we're cast out to starve. But this is the idea of Lord that is so foreign to us, can be so foreign to us. But after three and a half millennium, 1,500 years before Christ, we have Psalms that are written. And I want to compare 15th century B.C. to some 21st century thinking. I'm going to turn over a couple of pages to the 29th Psalm. This has become one of my favorite psalms, but we'll, we'll read from chapter 29 of the Psalms, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God, the glory of thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Siron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare and in his temple. Glory. The Lord sat as king over the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. In the 15th century BC, the Canaanites had Baal in the thunderstorm. The God of fertility who brought the rains, who brought fierceness and lightning and thunder. And they saw this in the thunderstorm and they wrote poems about it, very similar to this poem that the psalmist has written. But in the 21st century, as I understand meteorology to a degree, I see a thunderstorm here. I can, I can recognize this is a thunderstorm. God's over the rain. Absolutely. He sends out lightning bolts from his thunderstorm. The trees and everything shake. The trees are stripped bare. Every one of us in this region has seen a thunderstorm. And we're not near as in awe of it as we would be a tornado or perhaps a hurricane or other huge natural disasters that are at the bidding of God. But he certainly gives us a different idea from what he gives to the 15th century audience. We see calm among the fury. We see peace of his throne room. They had no idea of a personal God. The Canaanites really had no idea about the fire and the cloud that he led them out of Egypt with, the personal God that was with them, talking to Moses and delivering his message. No idea of the glory of the Lord actually entering into the tabernacle 
as Ezekiel describes it leaving, he could see the cloud leave the temple. It was there. It was among the people. The idea of a sanctuary. Yes, even a living sanctuary that we are in this day and age, that we are built up to be his sanctuary, that we would reveal his glory. But Yahweh does not argue with trivial gods. He doesn't have a polemic against Baal to say he's wrong. He simply declares, I am above the thunderstorm. I am above the flood, which the uh, Epic of Gishmael, I think, or uh, forget my Canaanite history is not that good. But the Canaanites had a flood story too. And he simply declares he is king of the flood. The idea of the waters, the waters are chaos. He's king of the chaos. The, the Babylon or the Canaanite myth said that the chaos of Tiamat, the dragon, was slain by Baal and cut to pieces and the earth was created out of that. He doesn't argue against it. Just says, I'm above it. In this day and age, he doesn't argue against sin. He simply declares he's above it. Declares for us to be above it. In the time of Christ, he simply scoffed at the rulers and the leaders who were going to put Christ to death because he knew what his plan was. He was above all of it. He is above all of it. And then there's the throne room in the end. The place of peace with his people and in his temple glory. Yes, this is what the entire book of the Revelation is about. The glory of God's throne room and the myriads of angels and those worshiping him there. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, we're told that God does not want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and be with him. He protects us through life and death. He protects us and wanting all come to repentance and be in his company before his throne. Yes, he, sa he has salvation for all of those who would accept him. Yah, he is glorified because of the salvation of his people. I'm going to go back a couple of pages again to Psalms chapter 21. O oh Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly will he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessing of good things. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. You make him blessed forever. You make him joyful in the gladness of your presence. The king is exalted through the salvation and the glory of God. In the same way, we should be exalted and show the magnificence and the glory and the power of God of salvation through being Christians in his church.
His glorious great through salvation, splendor and majesty you placed upon him. The Lord gives glory to us. The Lord God, King, Yahweh, forgives for his name's sake. This is what Numbers 14 is about. Moses says, please don't destroy these people who are so rebellious to you because the Egyptians will hear about it and they will say he has killed his people, taken them out into the wilderness to destroy them. You will not be glorified by this. God knew what Moses was going to say, but Moses said it and God responded. And this is the same way we work in prayer. God knows what we need, but he wants to hear us say it and we learn about ourselves when we pray to him. We think through what we want, what we need, what we desire, how humbled we need to be, how forgiven we need to be. We reiterate these things aloud to God and it brings it home to us in our hearts. But God forgives for his name's sake. Jeremiah chapter 14, the entire chapter is, yes, I know we're iniquitous, but forgive us for your name's sake. The people will see that you love us and your glory and power will be revealed if you forgive us and stop this drought. That's Jeremiah 14. Psalm 79 is pretty much the same as Psalm 25 and verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Pardon me because I'm iniquitous so I can display your glory. It's not that you hear a lot of times, how it is that you hear a lot of times. People say, well, I can't be forgiven. How can I be forgiven? I'm such an iniquitous person. I keep sinning over and over again. I can't be forgiven. It's not about me being forgiven. It is, yes. But essentially, it's about me glorifying God because my sins are forgiven. If I take the focus off of me and not being able to be forgiven and say glory to God because I am forgiven, then the situation is resolved and I can recognize I am forgiven. I can have that faith that what he says is true. Explicitly in 1 John 2.12, he says, Little children, I'm writing to you, my beloved, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Psalm 31, 109, 115, 143. Be iniquity forgiven for his name's sake. It's lead me kindly. Deal with me gently. It's me, not you, that has... It's you, not me. Wow, I was a Freudian slip. It's you, not me, that has this glory for the forgiveness of sin. Ephesians chapter 3 sums up these two ideas of God is glorified because of his salvation and he forgives for his name's sake. In Ephesians chapter 1, let's see, let me check my notes and be sure I'm right. Yes, it's Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Christ Jesus, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him 
before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. If you look at what he's saying there, that he gave us as an adoption to himself for his name's sake, he gave us to adoption to himself. Then further on down in verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory that we inherited a hope in Christ and therefore we are the praise of his glory that his glory comes through our hope through our salvation and that's borne out in 13 and 14 in him you also after listening to the message of truth the gospel of your salvation having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory that is on earth we glorify because of his salvation. That view towards the redemption of his possession, of his people, the salvation of us on earth is to the praise of his glory. That is, again, we show his glory being his people in this day, in this age, and this time because we heard and believed and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Jacob was kind enough to read for us earlier, I believe, in ways, presents a very living and breathing example of what this looks like. First of all, in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul tells the Thessalonians that him coming to them was not in vain. What exactly does he mean? If you look at verse 13 of the same chapter, he says, For this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The idea that he had come to them, he had presented the word of God, he had revealed God's glory to them, and they had accepted it. They had acknowledged it. It was indeed residing with them. We acknowledge He is exalted, and He provides. His word, the gospel, His glory is revealed. And then it's acknowledged as in not as the word of men, but the word of God. He describes this in verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by the way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but to God who examines our hearts. 
the idea that it's not of men and it's not of error and it's not of impurity but it is God's word they were examined they were tested they were approved and his word was given to them so that he could speak the truth to the Thessalonians we never came with flattering speech as you know nor with the pretext for greed God is witness nor do we seek glory from men either from you or from others even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority he didn't come bring a message of men he didn't come motivationally speaking I want you to feel good about you I want you to do better for you he didn't give a message of men being good for themselves the message was God has come to save you and this was the word that was the truth that he gave to the Thessalonians that they indeed accepted he didn't come for money he didn't come for glory although as apostles they had the glory and the authority of God given to them oh if they had wanted to be glorious they could have been but that that is not how our Lord and Savior was glorious we acknowledge God by humbling ourselves as our Savior did exalting his glory not our own this concept is clearly presented in James 4 and 1 Peter 5 the idea that God humbles the proud but gives grace to the God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble it's a thought that comes from Proverbs 3 or perhaps Philippians or Psalms 18 or 31 but Psalms 138 actually renders it very nicely all the kings of the earth will give thanks to you Yahweh when they have heard the words of your mouth and they will sing of the ways of the Lord for great is the glory of the Lord for through the Lord for though the Lord is exalted yet he regards the lowly but the haughty he knows from afar the entire first half of the chapter of Philippians 2 is devoted to this very idea Do not be, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Be like Christ and empty yourself. Be blameless and innocent and shine as lights. Not our theme from this year, but certainly our theme from last year. 
things that we can do as a living goal. But even though I am being poured out as a drink offering, from verse 17, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all, and I urge you to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. In the face of death, Paul was in prison, perhaps facing death. We know he didn't die at this point in time, but he didn't know that when he wrote this. He encourages the Thessalonians and through the letter to them, us, to be willing to be joyous in other people's salvation, even if we are faced with death. To be joyous in our death because others have been saved and we are a part of them and perhaps had a hand in their salvation because we did indeed encourage them. We have to acknowledge our reliance upon Christ as we acknowledge Him. Philippians 4 and 13 says that I can do all things through the one who strengthens me, a reference to Christ from Paul. In Ephesians chapter 3 in verses 20 and 21 the greatness and the glory and the ability of Christ to strengthen us is shown. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we think or ask according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The idea that He strengthens us, that He sustains us, that we acknowledge our reliance on Him brings glory to Him. God is exalted in the most unusual of ways. From Acts 17, we learn what's going on here in Thessalonica. There's riots. There's beatings. There's people being dragged before the magistrates. Their money's being taken from them. Do you think Jason ever got his money back? I'll bet he didn't. Don't know, but I'll bet he didn't. People are on the run for their lives. Paul, not specifically right now, they snuck him out at night on this occasion, but in the next city he absolutely was running for his life, not because he wanted to, but because they dragged him out of the city to save his life. This is all going on, and in the midst of that, what do we have? seeing this. Oh, because I'm in Ephesians, not Thessalonians. Sorry. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become very dear to us. In the midst of all this turmoil, like the turmoil of the thunderstorm, in Psalms 29, suddenly there's this peace and this calm as a mother and a child, as in the throne room of God. The glory of God is presented through this peace, in spite of the turmoil that's going on around them. 
It's a family thing. In verse 11, Just as you know how we were exhorting you and encouraging and imploring each of you just as a father would his own children. I think about a teenage boy wanting the car, old enough to drive, but the father has to, son, you're old enough to do what is right. I grew up in the days before phones where they could monitor you every, every speed limit you went or didn't go. Imploring, do what's right. I've trained you to drive. He's imploring, he's exhorting. And this word is also mentioned, I want to make note of this in verse three because this was part of my dictionary concordance study. I was looking for this word. It wasn't in any of my apps. I found that very unusual, but I did find it eventually. I'll come back to that thought in a minute. But right now, he's imploring and exhorting those in Thessalonica as if he was a loving father. And this is what Paul is doing. And Paul doesn't say it, but just by the fact that he wrote, this is what I'm doing. I'm making sure that you're not burdened by me while I'm teaching you the Word of God. I'm giving you my life. He's glorifying God. He never claims glory for God, but he glorifies God in his own unique way, his humble way, the way that God is truly exalted by his Christ, our Savior. We can't see the exalted Yahweh Not in this earth. We can see examples of him. We can see evidence of him. But the true glory that he is, we cannot see. We can see him through those who act like his son. Through the word that records how his son acted. He protects the upright. He protects us. Matthew 6:33 tells us seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things shall be added to you. We are promised protection. I started off with a definition. I want to end with a definition. Exhortation to exhort. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't speak Greek. I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but I'm going to try it anyway. The Americanized the English Anglicanized version is Parakalete, I believe. It means the Holy Spirit. Paraclete. Paraclete is the Americanized version. But if you look at the Hebrew version of it, it's Parakela. My friend might correct me, he will later probably. Parakelo is the word exhort. Parakelatos is the word for the advocate. Holy Spirit. He exhorts them to act like the Holy Spirit, to be the comforter, to be the advocate, to sincerely appeal, to stand close to and call to, to invite, to encourage, to beseech, to beg, to comfort, and to console. And this is how we interact as the children of God, to glorify Him in all that we do. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, 
Behold our shield, our God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the God, the house of my God, than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. 1 Peter 3.21 is quite clear. Baptism now saves you. An appeal for a good conscience, not the washing of dirt from the flesh. And Romans chapter 6 tells us clearly that it is a simulation of his death and burial. And Matthew 28:20 20 tells us, Go, teach people about me, baptize them, and then teach them to obey all of my commandments. Clear teaching. There's two things at play here. Being resurrected with Christ in the waters of baptism and keeping all of his commandments. Things that we should be aware are part of our Christian walk. And if we're struggling with these things, let somebody know that they might exhort you, that we might be exhorted together. Let's sing a song. Be encouraged.